I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the Royal Horticultural Society Gardening Podcast. I'm Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturist here at the RHS. Coming up today, with increasing concerns about peat use in gardens and pollution from waste plastic, how can gardeners change their techniques and materials to become more environmentally friendly? I'll explain simple changes that can have a big impact to your carbon footprint. Plus, our advice team tackles some of your spring gardening questions. And pests! The figures are in, the votes have been counted, and our entomology team can announce the winners and new entries on the RHS annual top 10 chart of the most problematic pests in the UK. Stay tuned to see if slugs and snails can retain their coveted number one spot, or has a new contender stolen the crown? But first, as April is here and the snow has hopefully finished for the year, let's head outside to see what tasks the garden teams have been tackling. So my name is Verity and I'm the team leader for the Herbaceous team here at Wisley. We're currently standing in the summer house which is located in Oakwood and we're just having a look out. We can see some nice camellias out the door, nice rhododendrons which are about to burst open into flower. And uh, yeah, we're just going to be talking today about a few jobs that we're going to be getting on with here at Wisley over the next few weeks and things that you can equally be doing at home in your own gardens. So one of the jobs that we're going to be doing here is cutting back of our winter stems. So that includes things like Cornus, Salix and Rubus. We do those annually here at Wisley. We cut them back to a framework once a year, round about mid-March, but we actually do ours early April time uh, due to our winter walk finishing at the end of March. It is really important if you have any uh, winter stems at home, especially if they're newly planted, that you let them establish for two years before cutting them back. They just need to be allowed to get their roots down, otherwise you'll cut the top off and they won't have enough energy in their roots to, uh, to grow back. So yeah, leave them for two years, then after that second year you want to cut them down to a basic framework, quite low, but a basic framework that will then be the framework that you work to in the following years, just adding a couple of extra buds on every year. The aim is to keep that framework low for the best winter stem colour. Once we've uh, cut them back, we look at applying a nice mulch and feeding them as well. Really important, we give them a nice general purpose food, uh, just give them enough energy for the, the coming year. And then, yeah, mulching as well, really important, helps lock in the moisture as well so the winter stems aren't stressed looking for moisture. 
We also mulch a lot of our other plants here at Wisley, a lot of our other borders. Uh, we use two types of mulch on my areas here at Wisley. We use bark mulch, which is uh, we use more in the high profile areas. Um, and we also use bracken mulch, which we use more here in Oakwood. Uh, it's got a more woodland feel to it and the bracken mulch just fits in with that look a bit better. Other jobs we'll be getting on with are weeding. Anyone who's been out in their garden recently will notice that the weeds are starting to come up. They haven't been put off by the cold spell. So yeah, we're gonna get out there and start weeding. Uh, we've noticed a few dandelions already popping their heads up and a bit of hairy bittercress as well. So we're getting out with the hoe and the fork, take the opportunity as well to get out in your own gardens. And then also a bit of edging. We're gonna start lawn edging here at Wisley. A lot of our beds here have got lawn edges. Um, perfect time again, just to get out, crisp those edges up for the coming year. Uh, it'll just make your life so much easier for say the, the next season. You would really want to create a nice sharp edge and all you have to do is whiz around with the edging shears for the rest of the year. It just makes your life so much easier. If you'd like to see the results of our team's hard labour, there's lots of events on offer in the next few weeks for you to enjoy alongside the gardens, including the RHS Orchid Show and Plant Fair at our London HQ on the 6th and 7th of April. It's a celebration of exotic orchids and vibrant blooms with an amazing array of seasonal displays and specialist plants on offer from UK and international exhibitors. Discounted tickets are available for RHS members and there are free talks and demonstrations available to all visitors. See our podcast page for more information. April is one of the key times of year for taking measures to protect your vulnerable plants from damage from pests and diseases. Each season, our scientists help gardeners with research-based advice on a range of problems. And at the end of every growing year, they analyse the inquiries they've received from around the country to get an up-to-date picture of the challenges gardeners face. This helps the team recognise and trace the emergence of horticultural threats. We spoke to Andrew Salisbury in the entomology department to hear what pests caused gardeners in the UK the most problems in 2017. So moving into what is the top five. Uh, five, we have a relative newcomer, the alder leaf beetle. That is a nice blue beetle. It feeds on alder. It's about half a centimetre long. Um, and it was um, thought to be native, but it went extinct in about 1947. Nobody saw it before 1947 until about 2004 in the UK when it turned up in Cheshire. Since 2004, it began to build up in numbers and it's seen more and more often. And we received our first inquiry about this uh, insect in the RHS in about 2010. But since then, it's been increasing. And it's now very, very common in Cheshire, where it can be seen feeding on old trees in, in quite large numbers. Uh, but a couple of years ago, it started to appear in, um, in Hampshire, in Winchester, and has also spread out from there, which has led to even more inquiries to us. So this one is, uh, it does feed on leaves on older, tree, on older trees, but like most deciduous trees, it, it's fine. It can cope with a bit of defoliation in the spring, and it's just a, a new and novel thing that people are seeing. So it's not something that people really need to be worried about, uh, and it's just a nice blue beetle, as far as us entomologists are concerned. Dropping down a few places this year, uh, number four, slugs and snails. Uh, I think in reality, this is usually the biggest pest problem uh, people have in their gardens. Almost every garden will have a slug or snail problem. Everybody sees their plants nibbled. The reason why it's dropped down to number four, I think, is, is, is people are familiar with it and also just the prevalence this year of some of the ones I'll be talking about coming up. 
Uh, slug and snail control, it's a, a mixture of sort of hand-picking, tolerating a bit of damage. Uh, and if you're prepared to use chemicals, there are slug pellets and there are the organic slug pellets, which are said to be less dangerous to wildlife than the uh, non-organic ones. At uh, number three, we have vine weevil. Vine weevil is that pest that both the adults cause the, the leaf notching on things like rhododendron and thick leaved evergreen shrubs during the, in the summer, and that can be a bit disfiguring but doesn't kill plants. But it's the grubs, the white C-shaped things which feed away on plant roots over the winter months, which cause the most problems. Uh, often uh, you get to this sort of time of year expecting your plants to, to pull away and grow. Uh, and he said they just collapse and you lift them out of the pot and there's nothing left but these grubs. The thing with vine weevil is once you know you've got a problem is to treat pots and containers in late summer, early autumn to kill off the grubs so they don't feed on the roots over the winter. Again, this is a very, very widespread problem and I would say it's as equal with slugs and snails. Most gardens are, gardeners are familiar with it but still require advice on how to deal with them. So into number two now and fuchsia gall mite. If you grow fuchsias and they get distorted growing tips uh, this might be due to this tiny mite. The mite itself is about 0.3 of a millimetre in length. That's less than the third of the size of their average full stop. So they're not really visible without either a very good hand lens or a microscope. They, like most gall mites, they feed away on plant tissue and they cause it to distort. Now, almost all gall mites, this distortion is not really too disfiguring or it's something the plant can be coped with. Unfortunately, on fuchsias, it affects the growth tips and it is, is very, very distorted indeed. It's a mite that arrived in the UK in about 2007. It originates from South America, first being described new to science in the late 70s. It was quite soon found in parts of the United States and California where it's caused big problems. And it began to turn up in Europe in the early 2000s. And it's thought to have been spread around by people moving cuttings about. It can almost be traced from plant flare to plant flare. Uh, as I say, eventually reached the UK in about 2007. It's now, since then, become very widespread on the south coast, uh, both on uh, hardy and non-hardy fuchsias. It seems to be surviving our winters. And by the south coast, I mean everywhere from Cornwall through to Kent has, has, has got this now. Uh, fuchsia being such a popular plant and this being such a new problem, uh, we are seeing it reported to us an awful lot. I think it's one that's not going to go away and I expect it'll be in the top 10 for, for years to come. Fuchsia mite is very difficult to control. There are no uh, chemicals or pesticides you can spray against these mites which are likely to have any effect. They are hidden away deep in the plant tissue. So really the advice is either dispose of infected plants, uh, this could be by council waste or burning, or cut them back. Cut back those growing tips as far as you dare. Uh, the plants will regrow and you can hope you've at least reduced the mite for the time being. But it is something that fuchsia growers are going to have to learn to live with uh, and maybe pruning it out a bit more often. Right, and to reveal number one, now this will probably become as no surprise to anybody who grows box in London or the surrounding areas, the box tree moth. This is uh, an Asian moth, uh, the caterpillars of which feed and are webbing and can completely defoliate box buxus plants. Caterpillars themselves reach about two and a half centimetres long. They are green and black, and as I say, feed webbing in uh, large numbers together. They're a, a gregarious caterpillar. The moth itself has a wingspan of, we're getting on for three centimetres, is usually white with a uh, brown edging, uh, but there is also a 
dark brown melanic form as, it, as it's called and that, that does have a shiny appearance. Last year we received getting on for 400 inquiries via the advisory service on this which really prompted up to, to number one but we also have a web survey on this and that web survey received over 3,000 reports largely from London and the home counties of basically box hedges and box plants being completely and utterly defoliated. The insect originates from Southeast Asia uh, got into Europe in the early 2000s and the damage in Central Europe is as bad as people are seeing in London. It is absolutely wiping out hillsides, gardens, you're getting thousands and thousands of moths appearing. How far it will spread in the UK we don't yet know. So what can people do? This moth has two generations a year. It can fly in. There are vast numbers of them out there. It feeds into webbing. Caterpillars are difficult to get out with uh, pesticides. You do need to force through that, that webbing. Hand picking is another option, but again, you're trying to get through that webbing. So in some areas, it might be time to consider alternatives, uh, such as uh, Sweetbox, Sarkakaka, the small-leaved hollies, yews. Uh, these are all being considered now where box tree moth and some other box problems, which you may hear from our plant pathologists, such as the box blight, are making it very difficult to grow box. Andrew Salisbury from the RHS Entomology Department. As mentioned earlier, you can find links to more info on our podcast page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. In our next episode, the science team will bring you a rundown of 2017's top 10 plant diseases across the UK. Now, question time. Our advisors help people with their gardening queries throughout the year and spring is a particularly busy time for them. Let's join the team in their office to hear if they can help resolve problems they've been sent this month. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt, Principal Horticulture Advisor at RHS Garden Wisley. Today I'm joined by Rob Sterling Hello. and Guy Barter. Hello. Mr A. Fletcher from London writes, I have a patio with several pots. I'd like to grow fruits or berries. Are there any which will thrive in containers? Are there any unusual berries I could grow? They are so expensive in the shops. Now, have you got any containers with fruiting, Guy? Yeah, um, actually, interestingly, commercial growers have moved to container growing their fruit, their berries, because at one time they would... Uh treat the soil to get rid of pests and diseases with chemicals this is no longer allowed so they're growing plants in pots so there's a lot of expertise on this at the moment the main one is blueberries of course blueberries are what we call an ericaceous plant that means it must have an acid soil to thrive so happily you can buy ericaceous compost and um, which is nice and acid and will support blueberries without these telltale signs of yellowing leaves, which is what happens if the soil is too alkaline. Uh, blueberries are one of the most popular berries in the supermarket, so I imagine they would suit a Mr or Mrs Fletcher very well. Closely related to the blueberries are cranberries. And cranberries are a low-growing plant. They're like the things that you find on the moors, for example, like bilberries. So they're quite a low-growing plant, a small um, yield, but they're easy to grow. Again, they're an ericaceous plant. They need ericaceous compost. Um, you could, for example, if you had a big pot, you could plant them as ground cover underneath a tall blueberry. So those are two excellent berries to grow. They're not too fussy about shade or sun. They won't thrive in deep shade, um, but um, if there's partial shade for part of the day, they'll be fine. Now, of course, strawberries and raspberries are easy to grow in containers, but 
to make life easy for the gardener, plant breeders have bred some dwarf raspberries recently, and they, of course, are very easy to grow. If you put an ordinary raspberry in a container, it's not at all impossible. It's not even that difficult. But, of course, you do have to find some way of staking them and supporting them. All raspberries are not the same. There's some rather interesting purple ones. There's one called Glencoe, for example, and they're easy to grow in containers too. Particularly if there's children, um, they're much appreciated because uh, you can pick them off one by one as they ripen. They won't produce a heavy crop, but they will produce a particularly interesting and uh, different flavoured fruit. The plant breeders have also been busy with mulberries. Mulberries uh, used to be a plant that grew into a large tree. It would often take 10 years before they crop. Um, but uh, there's a dwarf mulberry on the market at the moment that crops almost immediately. Very simple to prune and most unusual and innovative plant. It's interesting to see how well it's going to do in Britain, but um, all the indications are from the trials that it's something that's uh, well worth considering. So really the time has never been better to grow berries in containers. Any apples and pears that are suitable, Rob? Yes, apples and pears um, are perfectly suitable to growing containers. Try to avoid the apples, for example, on the dwarfest rootstock, uh, which is the M27, because growing in a container coupled with the fact that it's on an M27 rootstock can lead to reduced vigour in the tree. Something like an M106, uh, which is semi-vigorous, would be a much better option. Bear in mind, though, that the trees, in order to keep them healthy, will require repotting after, say, two to three years, potting up into a larger container as they grow. Once they reach the largest pot size that you can manage, perhaps every three or four years, consider root pruning, which will mean take away about an inch of the outside of the root ball and then put the plant back into the same size pot. Um, That will keep the plant healthy and vigorous almost indefinitely. But there are some dwarf peaches and nectarines which are naturally dwarfing and uh, would be suitable for growing in containers. One variety of peach is called Garden Lady and there's a nectarine called Nectarella. The difference between these two and, say, apples and pears is that they're self-fertile. Many apples need a pollinating partner, as do pears. So growing one of those varieties um, isn't necessarily sufficient in order to get fruit. But certainly with the, uh, the peach and the nectarine, that is possible. Do bear in mind, though, that both of those varieties would be susceptible to peach leaf curl, which can be prevented by keeping the new foliage clear of water, maybe placing the the pots under cover during the time when the foliage is emerging in order to prevent that disease. There is, though, a new variety called Avalon Pride, which is a regular peach tree, but it is resistant to peach leaf curls. So that's something else that is possible to consider. Okay, so David Crest from Manchester writes, Colour in September. How do I get some colour in my dull terrace garden in September? I have a strip lawn and annual borders. Any suggestions for flowers and foliage for colour in the late summer or autumn? Well, I think September is actually a month of two halves because it kind of marks the change between late summer and very much the autumn plants. And often to bridge that proper September gap, you need two almost distinct groups so for earlier in the month i would start with something like rebecca goldstone this has a ray-like yellow flowers that are daisy-like with black centers and they will really start in august and carry on to mid-september but by that point they're beginning to wane so to carry on the display start to rely on the old michaelmas daisies or asters all sorts of various strains to try here 
I rather like the one called Little Carlo. This has more loose uh, spray-like head of lilac-y mauve flowers and in the centre you get little yellow centres that have little red bits as well. That will take you through into about early October but if you want to extend beyond it's one of the horizontalis asters called Lady in Black is very good. It has dark foliage through the summer which looks very good against other plants contrasting from the green but then you do get those little pink and white blooms coming out as well. One plant that will keep going right through until November is geranium roseanne. In some places it's almost overused now, but the white-centred blue flowers of that, if you cut them back in about August time and then give them really good water, will look very fresh into September, October. I was going to suggest sunflowers, because if they're sown in May, um, they'd be easy to put into an annual border. And if they're the branching kind, they'll go on and flower um, for quite a long time and make good cut flowers in the house. I think asters are a wonderful thing, but they can be demons for mildew. But there's one that's um, on the blue side called monk, um, which is a wonderful thing to grow. If we're talking about plants from seeds, it might well be for Mr Crest here with his annual borders. Um, Korean chrysanthemums have dropped out of fashion over the last few years, but the seed can still be grown and they make splendid chrysanthemum plants free of any vice that go on until the first frosts knock them on the head. And of course, the Japanese anemone is, is a good stalwart for the autumn garden and is particularly useful in areas where there's perhaps dry shade because uh, they will grow and flower quite happily in those conditions as well as in more regular sunny moist ones and of course dahlias as well become very fashionable again over the past few years they will flower right up until the first frosts and are now available in a variety of different sizes and forms so there's plenty to choose from. S. Pike from Bristol writes a rather short but not very sweet question can I compost dog poo? guy oh i've definitely drawn the short straw here haven't i um yes you can certainly compost dog poo it'll rot down in the compost heap and um it'll disappear however dogs are well known to carry quite a a large burden of parasites which is why one has to worm them at regular intervals Uh, these parasites are potentially are quite harmful Um, they pose a bit of a risk to children and the eggs that uh, these parasites produce are pretty durable so i'm not convinced that in garden compost they would be destroyed so i'm afraid that on health grounds particularly if children are involved um, i would strongly recommend that you don't compost dog poo the final question comes from claire blurton and she asks how can i cultivate edami peas i have an allotment in nantwich Well, edami or edamame, I'm never quite sure how how it should be said, um, are one of my very favourite vegetables. Whenever I go to a certain uh, Japanese restaurant chain, I always have a lovely bowl of these soya bean pods that have been steamed and covered in salt, and then you pop the little tender beans into your mouth and eat them, and they're delicious, absolutely delicious. Unfortunately, the soya beans that are grown in Japan are a different kind of soya beans that can be grown in Europe because the soya bean is what's called day length sensitive so that it won't flower until it has short days. However, soya beans have been bred in places like Ukraine and Canada to cope with 
higher latitudes as you get closer to the poles the difference in day length um, gets longer and these ones can be grown so although they make a fair crop of soya beans for cows and pigs they are not great soya beans for edamame you can eat them and they're relatively easy to grow to grow just think french beans uh, sow them in modules or cell trays in april plant out in may gather a crop from late summer onwards Now, finally, one of the issues of concern to many gardeners I meet through my work in RHS gardens at shows and when visiting community projects is environmentally conscious gardening. That's how people can change the material they use from plant pots to growing media to recycle more and make better use of precious natural resources. At this time of year, many of us are thinking about stocking up on growing media for sowing seeds and potting plants. Traditionally, For the last 50 years, growing media has been made from peat, but peat is not a renewable source and extracting peat from lowland bogs causes great damage, irreparable in less than hundreds of years to the environment that is rather rare and unique. This applies all across the world, so even in countries with even more peat than than Britain and Ireland, there are still concerns. Government-sponsored drives to reduce the use of peat have put pressure on the manufacturers of growing media to reduce the peat and replace it with other things. The kind of things that are used in place of peat are wood fibre, bark chips, coconut fibre, commonly called coir, and municipal compost. Some kinds of compost are what are called peat reduced, where perhaps the peat only accounts for 30% of the peat, and that's a good step in the right direction. But even better are peat-free compost that are based entirely on these other materials. Peat-free composts are not the same as peat-based composts. Uh, They have to be handled differently. So it's really important to read the instructions on the packaging that the composts come in. For example, very often more watering is needed to wash out surplus nutrients that come from the municipal compost and which would otherwise scorch plant roots. So we would urge gardeners to at least experiment with peat-free media and gradually and perhaps uh, quickly Eliminate peat-based growing media from your gardening and replace it with peat-free material. This includes growing bags. There are peat-free growing bags available. And peat-free growing media is particularly useful for big tubs and containers. And they, after all, are the ones that use the most compost. I think we've all been horrified by the amount of plastic waste in the environment uh, following recent publicity. And, of course, plastics are, as in all walks of life, in everything we do in life, are very important in gardening for example plastic plant pots are one of the best ways of retailing plants but there's also the problem of what to do with the plant pots so they up till now they've not really been recyclable in any but a very small way however um, following recent concerns new recycling schemes are coming online so we trust that in future you'll be able to return pots to garden centers and nurseries and they'll be recycled or reused There's other kinds of plastic too. Some things like string, um, natural string is much, much better than plastic string. Plastic string is a bit of a mess, a menace. It um, degrades the soil and you can never get rid of it, whereas natural string just rots away to nothing. Plastic labels are also a nuisance, but unfortunately there's not not many things quite as durable. All the same, uh, for certain uses, for example, labelling trees and shrubs, you can use copper labels that will last forever. And wooden labels are feasible for short-term things. 
Often we clad greenhouses and polythene tunnels in plastic and we protect plants with low tunnels and plastic cloches and we cover them with horticultural fleece, which is a kind of a non-woven plastic transparent material for protecting plants from cold and wind. These things are degraded in the sunlight and so recycling them is particularly difficult. It's worth considering replacing your greenhouses or polytunnels with glass-clad structures, making use of glass cold frames and investing in glass cloches. Things like glass cloches cost more, but they last for a very long time. In gardening, as in all walks of life, um, there are ways in which you can reduce your plastic footprint. As always, for more information, check the links on the RHS website. Well, that's all we have time for now. From me, Guy Barter... And all of us at the RHS, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.